The ingredients for today's episode are Tosca, Veracity, and Campari. I'm Andy Anderson, the mischievous maestro, and we're mixing up the perfect combination. The opera Tosca is based on a five-act play, La Tosca, by Victor Sardou. Sardou, of course, was one of the eminent and most prolific uh, French playwrights of his day. His version, the play La Tosca, premiered on the 24th of November in 1887, and it quickly became one of the most successful plays that he wrote. Keeping in mind, he wrote over 70 plays. In the first few years it was performed, it was performed over 3,000 times in France, so I guess you could say it was the cats of the day. And of course, it was performed around the world. The role of Tosca was written for the great actress Sarah Bernhardt. And she premiered several of his plays, in fact, and those are nicknamed the Bernhardt plays. Bernard Shaw described the play as an old-fashioned, shiftless, clumsily constructed, empty-headed, turnip ghost of a cheap shocker. I guess that's high praise from Bernard Shaw. And if you've ever read any Bernard Shaw, you could probably say the same about his works as well. Two factors that helped Puccini make the choice to compose Tosca. Now, unlike Bohème, where there was the whole rival with Leon Cavallo, this one was pretty drama-less or less drama, one of the two. You figure out what you think. Shortly after composing his second opera, Edgar, Puccini saw the play La Tosca with Sarah Bernhardt in Milan. In fact, he went back the next night and saw it again. Puccini spoke no French, none whatsoever. But he was so moved by the drama of the characters that he saw on stage, he knew that it would instantly translate into an amazing opera. And he felt he was the only composer that could possibly do that justice. The other factor that kind of helped Puccini make a choice, I guess, or a deciding factor to compose opera, was he had heard rumor from Ricordi, his publisher, that Verdi was looking at the Sardou play as a possible subject matter for his next opera. Of course, Verdi never got around to writing it. He felt he was too old at the time, at that particular time in his life, to really start looking at a subject matter of such, as he called it, ferocity. These two circumstances filled Puccini with a lot of enthusiasm, and he really, it, it energized him, and he really, really, really wanted to compose this opera. But first, he had to do something else. He had to finish writing Bohème, and he had to get Bohème on stage. About two or three years later, Puccini had almost forgotten about the subject matter of Tosca until he heard that a friend of his, Alberto Franchetti, was getting ready to compose an opera based on the Sardou play La Tosca, with a libretto by none other than Puccini's librettist, Illica, who wrote the libretto for La Boheme. Of course, in great Puccini fashion, when he found out that Franchetti was getting ready to start composing this opera based on a subject matter that he really wanted, he then turned his full attention to making sure that he alone got the rights to do the opera. During this time, of course, there were no dramatic scenes like what we saw during Boheme with Leon Cavallo and newspapers. This time it was rather easy. Basically, Puccini's publisher Ricordi, who also happened to be the publisher for Franchetti, 
and Puccini's librettist, Illica, basically went to Franchetti and said, don't do it. Don't compose it. It's an unsuitable subject, and it will do nothing but bring you financial and artistic ruin. It's too political of a subject, and it will not work, especially in Italy. We'll get into that reason coming up, but it was still, the subject matter was still just a little fresh of a wound in Italy at the time. After a couple weeks of going back and forth, Franchetti finally decided that he would give up the story and decided that he would walk away from it. The next day, Puccini walked into Ricordi's office and signed a contract to compose a three-act opera based on the Sardou play La Tosca. By the way, fun fact, Franchetti was a student of Puccini's father. So I think we've come to a point where with all of this talk of Puccini basically stealing a story and and so on and so forth from another composer, and we're about to get into some really in-depth, fun facts about Tosca, we're going to make a drink. And the drink I've chosen for tonight, I think, kind of fits our theme. The drink is called Trouble in Paradise. And indeed, my friends, whenever we get into the story of Tosca and we get into a little bit about opening night which is a really great story. And then, of course, we're going to get into eventually some really fun stories about incidences that have happened over the years on stage with Tosca. And trust me, if it can go wrong in Tosca, it does. So I thought Trouble in Paradise just kind of fits the theme. This is a really fun drink, so I need everyone to do a couple things. I need you to go to your bar and pull out a bottle of bourbon. I'm going to be drinking a bullet bourbon tonight. I need you to reach way back in your bar I know it's there because in March, Stanley Tucci made a video of everyone drinking Negronis. And so everyone ran out and bought Campari. And because of that, I couldn't find any for a while, but I finally was able to find some Campari again. So I need you to reach back into the back of the bar and grab that dusty bottle of Campari out because I know after that one Negroni you drank, you didn't drink it anymore. But you still got it, so get it. So you've got your bourbon, you've got your Campari. I need you to get some grapefruit juice, some lemon juice. I need you to pull that pepper grinder off the spice shelf and also go ahead and pull some honey and you're going to need some basil out of your refrigerator. So grab those ingredients and we're going to make trouble in paradise. The first thing you're going to want to do, my friends, is take two tablespoons of honey and you're going to want to shake it with one tablespoon of warm water. Basically what you're doing here is you're making a simple syrup. So shake it until that honey dissolves. Two tablespoons of honey and one tablespoon of warm water. So after you do that, you're going to want to combine in your cocktail shaker, put some ice in it, put one basil leaf in it, one ounce of bourbon, not a shot, one ounce of bourbon, one ounce of Campari, three quarters of an ounce of fresh grapefruit juice, Three quarters of an ounce of fresh lemon juice. Put all of that in your cocktail shaker. And now you're going to put a half ounce of the honey syrup that you made. And now take that pepper grinder and put two grinds of pepper in your cocktail shaker. Put the lid on it. 
give it a good shake. You're gonna wanna shake it until it gets really cold. You're bruising the basil, and you want the cocktail shaker to get nice and frosty. And now you want to take the cocktail shaker, open it up, take your strainer, your fine mesh strainer, hold it over your rocks glass that has ice in it. That's why it's called a rocks glass. And strain the drink through the strainer into the glass over the ice. After you're done with that, take another leaf or two of basil, plop it in the glass, make it look pretty, and then hang on because it's a delicious drink. You're going to love it. Trouble in paradise. So how's everyone enjoying that trouble in paradise? It's pretty delicious for a lot of trouble, isn't it? So Sardou originally didn't want Puccini to do the opera because now you have to remember when Sardou first heard of Puccini, Puccini still hadn't released Boheme. He was still in the composition process. So Sardou originally didn't want Puccini to do the opera because he felt that Puccini was an unknown composer at the time. Of course, after the huge success of Boheme, and of course the still massive success that Manon Lescaut was having around the world, including the American premiere was happening during this time. Sardou saw that Puccini was more than capable of setting his little play to music. As with all of Puccini's libretti, he struggled working with the team of Ilica and Giacosa, even though he had already worked with them for the libretto of La Boheme and would eventually work with them on his next opera, Madame Butterfly. Puccini enjoyed their working relationship, but he felt like he was constantly being held up by their inability to produce the words for him fast enough. Of course, they would tell you, Ilica and Giacosa, that they were constantly being held up by Puccini's love of procrastination. Now, once he had the words, Puccini would immediately start composing, but it was getting him started sometimes, pushing him off the cliff, per se, that was the hard part. So it was this constant back and forth between Ilica Giacosa and Puccini that was really causing a little bit of tension, but still a pretty decent, and as we all know from the success of the three operas they did together, incredible artistic relationship. In 1897, Puccini traveled for the La Scala premiere of Boheme, and then he also went to England for the premiere of Boheme in Manchester. Now, this was all while Puccini was composing the music for Tosca, and he felt like he was constantly just being delayed because, of course, as the star composer, he had to be at all of these theaters for all the premieres. Also, he got paid a lot of money to be there. After the English premiere in Manchester of La Boheme, Puccini wrote a letter to Ricordi saying, I am all alone in this horrible place filled with chimney smoke, rain, and cold, and you should hear what dogs they have hired to sing these roles. But here they like them, and just like their food, they have absolutely no taste. Another one of Puccini's dislikes with this production was the performances were done in English. During the composition process, Puccini and Sardou got together and had a, a meeting. Sardou was curious about how everything was going, and Puccini just kind of wanted to keep him in the loop. And Puccini and Sardou agreed that they did not like the ending that Ilica and Giacosa had come up with. Puccini showed Sardou his personal copy of the libretto in which he had made several notes and revisions that he wanted. And in this, at the end, Puccini had written, this is the exit aria. Sardou asked what he meant by this. And Puccini said, well, this is where the audience would, after being able to foresee the ending because of the way that Ilica and Giacosa had written it, this would be where the audience would be standing up and rushing out of the theater 
to grab their overcoats and get outside to beat the rush, all before the final curtain came in. The original libretto had a mad scene for Tosca, and this is what Puccini and Sardou did not like. Upon hearing that Puccini had disagreed with the ending as well, Sardou jumped to his feet, grabbed Puccini's hands, and said, I see, sir, that you are indeed a man of the theater. It was then that Illica knew that he would have to rewrite the text for the ending of the opera and also would constantly fight Puccini on adding in lines that Puccini liked that Illica did not. It's also fun to note that if it had not been for Puccini putting some of the text back in that Illica had cut from he and Giacosa's original libretto, that we would not have some of the great lines that we have today. For instance, in Act 2, after Tosca has stabbed and killed Scarpia, and after she has laid the candelabras at his head and the crucifix on his chest, she then bends over and says the great line, and before him all Rome trembled. Illica wanted that cut, and Puccini absolutely insisted that it go back in. And in fact, without even consulting Illica and Giacosa, Puccini just went ahead and put it in and then wrote the music afterward. Puccini's response to Ricordi when Ricordi contacted him and said, I hear that there's a little drama, uh-oh, trouble in paradise, a little drama between Illica and you on this particular line, Puccini quipped back quite quickly, I put it in and it works well for me, and after all, that's all that matters. So I don't know about you, but my trouble in paradise went down really easy and I need a refill. But instead, right now, I'm going to have a glass of wine. This is Blenheim Vineyards in Charlottesville, Virginia. And this is their wonderful, wonderful wine, uh, Ricazzatelli. It's a white wine, really crisp, wonderful while you're talking about Puccini. So hold on a second while I pour myself a glass. Excellent. Now, if you want to know more about Blenheim Vineyards, BlenheimVineyards.com. In Sardou's play, and also in Puccini's opera, the four main characters that we are introduced to, and I like to call them the main characters because they're the ones that die in the show. So Sardou described them as such. Cavarodossi, a painter of liberal sympathies, born in Paris of a Roman father and a French mother, student of a revolutionary artist, called to Rome to settle his father's estate, and then detained there by his infatuation and love for an opera singer, Tosca. Floria Tosca grew up as a goat herder, taken in and educated by Benedictine nuns, and then the composer Cimarosa heard her sing in the convent choir one day and got permission from the Pope himself to take her and train her formally, and now she sings in all the leading theaters throughout Europe. Scarpia, he's a baron, he's the chief of police, and he's a religious bigot. And then, of course, there's Angelotti, a consul for the short-lived Roman Republic during 1798 and recently escaped from the Castel San Angelo. Sardou is very specific to when his play takes place. It starts in the afternoon of June 17th, 1800, goes into the evening, and then ends in the morning of June 18th, 1800. In Puccini's opera, he just lists it as a generic June 1800. However, Act 1 is in the afternoon, 
Act two is in the evening, and act three the following morning. My friends, you'll notice that we're talking a lot about things that seem very real, very uncharacteristic in opera. But with Puccini, and you'll especially notice with this opera, Tosca, that we're talking a lot about real and truth. And there's a word for that in Italian, and it's called verismo. Verismo is the Italian word. It literally translates to realism. And it comes from the Italian word vero, which means truth. Puccini was a veristic composer. Now, not all of his operas are considered part of the verismo world, but Tosca is definitely one that fits. Verismo was a post-romantic operatic tradition in Italy. Other composers that specialized in verismo were Muscogni's Cavalleria Rusticana, Leon Cavallo's Pagliacci, Giordano's Andrea Chenier. But Puccini's operas are the ones that are performed the most in the Verismo school. Now, it was a short-lived school of composition, about 30, 35 years. Verismo is also related to the literary movement naturalism. It's real people, everyday real situations in real places. So we mentioned a little bit earlier about Rome and how we got here in the story. Again, this is Verismo. This is real. This is truth. So now I'm going to tell you a little bit about Rome for real during this time. Italy had been divided into a number of small states. The Pope ruled the Papal States, Central Italy. And after the French Revolution, Napoleon entered Rome and established a very short-lived republic. Remember, Angelotti, the character, was one of the consuls for that. Pope Pius VI was arrested after his exile and then eventual death. Pope Pius VII was elected. He was elected in March of 1800. He was not allowed into Rome until July 3rd, 1800. And during the whole Republic, the existence of the Republic that Napoleon had established, there was not a sitting Pope or a papal government. Rome was ruled by seven councils. Angelotti was one of those. And then finally, after Rome was abandoned, the city spent 14 years under French domination. The opera Tosca takes place in three locations that still exist today. I'm actually kind of stoked that I can say I've been to one of these three places. Act 1 takes place in the Church of San Andrea della Valle. Act 2 takes place in the Palazzo Farnese. And Act 3 takes place on top of the Castel San Angelo. That's the one I've been to. Right in the center of Rome. You can't miss it. Right by the river. Giant round building. Another fun fact that today the building, the Palazzo Farnese, is actually used as part of the French consulate. Tosca is a pretty simple story, my friends. Boy and girl are in love. Girl is being pursued by a bad man. The bad man has boy captured and tortured and uses this to try to convince the girl to spend one night with him. Prova, Roberti, ripigliamo! Rimane 
The girl kills the bad man. The boy and girl are reunited. The boy is assassinated. girl leaps to her death. As I always say, the higher the body count, the better the opera. In the opening of Act 3, again, we're talking realism, my friends. We're talking verismo. Puccini wanted an authentic sound of the church bells in Rome as they rang throughout the sunrise. Puccini spent time sitting and listening to the various sets of cathedral bells and chimes and wrote them all down. He spent many, many, many mornings in Rome doing this, doing this research. And then after he finally wrote these sounds down, he commissioned a well-known bell maker to create the actual instruments needed to replicate the exact sounds. Fun fact, one of those bells is in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Puccini also borrowed music from himself. I mean, if you're going to steal from someone, you might as well steal from the best. And if you happen to be the best, well, then that's okay, too. The duet, the big duet in Act 3 between Tosca and Cavaradossi, after they've been reunited and where Tosca tells Cavaradossi that it's going to be a fake execution, you're going to be fine. She tells him that I killed Scarpia, and he grabs her hands and says, how can your precious little hands drip with blood from this murder? And they think everything's going to be okay. Of course, we know in about seven minutes after that, nothing is okay. But a fun fact, I love fun facts if you haven't figured that out yet. Puccini took music from music that he had originally cut from Edgar, his second opera. 
and he used that music to recraft it for this duet. He had to finish this opera pretty quickly. He was spending so much time on Act 2 to get everything just right that Act 3 came up on him pretty quick, and when he was finally handed the text, he knew he just needed to recycle some music, especially after spending all that time creating the music of the prelude of Act 3 with all of those beautiful church bells. Opening night was a little rough. Now, when we think Puccini, we think instant hits. It took Boheme about two months to catch on. It took Tosca about two performances. But opening night was rough. There had been some political upheaval and unrest, and I think that's actually kind of perfect for a subject matter like Tosca, which is all about political upheaval and unrest. The police had received several bomb threats. In attendance for opening night was supposed to be the Queen, Prime Minister of Italy, and several other high-ranking dignitaries. Also in the audience, fun fact, two composers that probably were, they were excited to be there, but they were really hoping it would fail. Remember that guy I was talking about earlier, Franchetti, that Puccini stole the idea and stole the rights for the opera for? Yeah, he was there. And sitting right next to him, Muscogny. Fun to note, the conductor for the world premiere had actually survived the theater bombing a few years earlier in Barcelona. And he was told by the police that upon any signal that we give you, start playing the Royal March. And that will be everyone's cue to get the Queen and the Prime Minister out of the theater. Opening night was pushed one day for security. It was supposed to happen on the 13th of January. But finally, it happened on the 14th of January, 1900. On opening night, it is said that after Act 2, Muscogny leaned over and said to someone, I am the victim of a bad libretto, and he is the victim of too good of one. So Muscogny's most recent opera that had come out failed because of a really horrible libretto. And here he is super jealous that Puccini had a great libretto, but Muscogny was basically saying the libretto is great, but the music, not so much. I said earlier that if something can go wrong with the opera, it usually does. And it usually happens in Act 3. But in Act 2, there's been a couple really fun things that have happened. So Tosca stabs Scarpia. Basically, what he's doing is he's promising her free passage. If she will spend one night with him, then he will write a note of free passage for she and Cavaradossi, who's in prison at the Castel San Angelo, will set them free. And that way they can escape Rome and live happily ever after. And so Tosca finally agrees. And as Scarpi is writing this bill of free passage, Tosca notices the knife on the table because Scarpi had been eating dinner. And she picks it up. And as he stands up from his desk and calls out to her, finally, you're mine, she plunges the knife into his chest and murders him. Well, in one performance, the soprano couldn't find the knife, and the moment came for the stabbing, and she knew that she had to stab him because he had to die, because that's what makes Act 3 happen. So she panicked, as sopranos often do, and she grabbed a banana and stabbed Scarpia in the chest with a banana, death by potassium. Another really funny story happens with the firing squad. A firing squad had been hired at the last minute, and off stage, as they're rushed into costume for Act 3, the stage director just told them to go out, shoot the prisoner, and then march off. The firing squad, they were all, I guess, huddling together, nervous about what they were about to do. And 
assumed the name of the opera was Tosca. So surely she must die. And so they go out and picture now, close your eyes, everyone close your eyes. Are your eyes closed? Can you picture it? On one side of the stage, let's call it the right side of the stage, is Cabarrodosi, tied up, hands behind his back, ready to be shot. On the complete opposite side of the stage, let's call it the left, is Tosca, singing, it's all going to be okay. And the firing squad comes out, and they stand in formation. They point their guns to Tosca. It comes time to fire. They fire their guns at Tosca. She stays standing, and on the other side of the stage, with their backs, the firing squad's backs returned to him, Cavaradosi drops dead. Another funny story, the guards at the end of the opera. So after the assassination, Tosca has this really beautiful moment where she hovers over his body, trying to wake him up, thinking that it was a a fake execution. And she realizes that she's been double-crossed, that he's really been shot. He's dead. She panics. She runs. And a bunch of guards run on stage to arrest her for the murder of Scarpia, they have found out. And so what she does is she runs to the top of the parapet she turns around, she has a really amazing line, O Scarpia Vantiadio, which translates to, O Scarpia, we will meet before God. And then she jumps off and splatters at the end. Well, the guards were hired at the last minute. And again, they're backstage and they're getting ready for their big moment. And the stage manager tells them, just follow Tosca. And so they're like, okay, so... They run out on stage, and she runs up to the parapet. She turns around. She says her great line, and she jumps over the edge. And one by one, all the guards followed her off the edge of the parapet, which I'm sure was quite a surprise to her as all of a sudden a bunch of people are landing on top of her backstage. And my favorite, and the last of the funny little stories I'll tell you, but my favorite, and probably the least funny, but still, I think, the funniest of all of these stories, There was a soprano whose name shall not be named, was in a production, and had pissed the stage crew off. She was quite feisty, this one. And she had upset the stage crew. And now normally there's a what we call in the theater world, we call it a crash pad. There's a, a fairly soft landing spot for the soprano to jump off of and jump on with no hindrance whatsoever for the rest of the the play out of the show. But the stage crew replaced the crash pad with a trampoline, unbeknownst to the soprano falling with great velocity, hit the trampoline, and then they said she had about five unscheduled curtain calls as she kept bouncing back and forth, sometimes with her dress over her legs, sometimes with various arms going in different directions. Let's just call it she had a bounce-back career. So after a few funny stories, Now I'm going to give you a few of my favorite quotes from Tosca. This is actual text. This is English translation of the text. These are the lines, my friends, that really hooked me onto this opera. It had a massive, profound effect on me. In Act 1, Scarpia is in pursuit of Tosca. Remember, he's a religious bigot. And in the middle of, remember, we're in a church. And in the middle of a Te Deum celebration scene, with all the bells and whistles, for lack of a better word, and the choir singing, and the orchestra playing, Scarpia stands, and he, in the middle of this great religious ceremony, and he says, 
Tosca, you make me forget God. Always gives me goosebumps. One of my favorite moments as an audience member for Tosca, but also as a conductor. I've done several productions of this opera, and that's always the one where I get the first set of goosebumps in a performance. In Act Two, Tosca has a couple really great lines. This is, of course, after she has stabbed Scarpia, not with a banana, but with the actual stabbing utensil. And she stabs him and she says, This is Tosca's kiss. And then after he's taken his last breath and he's died, she leans over him and says, now I forgive him. And then just a couple moments later, she has that great line. And before him, all Rome trembled. And then, of course, act three, just as she's getting ready to take the Tosca plunge. Oh, Scarpia, avanti a Dio. Oh, Scarpia, we meet before God. My friends, we got a couple questions in the email this week. By the way, if you have any questions that you're just dying to know about, email me at themischievousmaestro at gmail.com, and I will do my absolute best to get those questions answered for you. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. I have to tell you, this is just really fun to sit here and talk to you about my favorite things, and that's Puccini and opera and, of course, a good cocktail. So Jan in San Antonio asks, my favorite opera is Rigoletto, mainly because at the end, after the soprano is stabbed, she sings another aria from a body bag. Are there any silly instances in Tosca where characters still sing after being assumed dead? Jan, that's an excellent question, and it's a very simple answer. No, when Puccini, unlike Verdi, kills someone, they're dead. Very dead. Tosca, like many operas, of course, have people die. But in Tosca, there are so many people that die, multiple dead people, at the end of the opera that don't sing anymore after they're dead, P.S. And I always like to say, the higher the body count, the better the opera. Well, that's what makes Tosca such a great opera, because everyone's dead at the end, including half the audience, usually. Ah, uh, here's a question that I like. Sarah in San Diego, what is your favorite part of Tosca to conduct? And that's super easy. I love the entire score from top to bottom, and I'm always amazed every time I conduct it. But my favorite part of the opera to conduct is the torture scene in Act 2. Now, I know it sounds a little dark and it sounds a little crazy to say that, but I feel like here Puccini really captures the anguish of a woman listening to her lover being tortured, and the music is so perfectly captures the pain of Cavaradossi, who's being tortured. And not to mention, it's just kick-ass music. And so, Sarah, another way to answer your question is, we're going to play you a little clip here of just a, a few seconds of the torture scene uh, so that you can hear how amazing this music is.
My friends, I have a recording that I would like to recommend to you. And this is a recording that was one of the first full opera recordings that I purchased. And it's the recording that made me fall in love with Puccini, actually. I first heard this on vinyl. I had to have been 13 or 14 years old at the public library in the little town in Louisiana that I grew up in. And I was there. I was supposed to be doing research for a term paper. And instead, I found this vinyl. I knew nothing about it, but the cover art on it was really amazing. And I put it on and I put the headphones on. These were the days, of course, when libraries had turntables and not CD players. And I put the vinyl on and I listened to it and totally lost track of time. This was also before I, way, well before cell phones. And I remember my mother had to come into the library looking for me because I had missed the time that I was supposed to meet her outside. And in fact, I didn't even realize until I looked up and saw my mother standing there fuming because she had to get out of the car and come inside the library that the library had closed 30 minutes ago and that the librarians were being very sweet and letting me finish listening to this recording. So this recording, my recommended recording of Tosca is with the great late Franny, who we just lost a few months ago, the great late Luciano Pavarotti and Sharon Milnes, an amazing recording. Absolutely amazing recording. My recommended reading would be a great book titled Tosca's Rome by Susan Nicasio. And a fun little fact, at the time that she wrote this book, Susan was on the music faculty at the University of Louisiana in Lafayette. I want to take a moment to give a shout out to a company, Charlottesville Opera. In each episode, I want to be able to highlight a company that means a lot to me professionally and personally. And this episode, it's Charlottesville Opera. Now, think back just a few minutes ago when I poured this delicious glass of wine, the Blenheim Vineyard Ricazzatelli. That vineyard is in Charlottesville, Virginia as well. Charlottesville has become my summer home. I work there with this company during the summer, have developed some really wonderful friendships with people in the community with people, the orchestra, the young artists, the tech crew, of course, the principal artists. It's just a really wonderful place. We perform at the Paramount Theater on the historic downtown mall in Charlottesville. And basically, I'm giving you these shout outs because I'm encouraging you to support your local opera company, support your local arts, period, but especially your opera company. We need art more than anything in the world right now. We need real, we need truth, we need honesty. And the arts is where we get it from. Support your local arts organizations. Check out Charlottesville Opera, charlottesvilleopera.org. It's a summer festival and join us next summer. It's going to be really exciting. charlottesvilleopera.org. Trust me, it's worth the trip to Charlottesville. You'll enjoy it, I promise. And I'll see you there. My friends, I want to take just a moment to do a dedication and in memory, if you will, to someone that I hold very dear to my heart, my very first conducting mentor, Dr. George Adams. And tragically, we lost Dr. Adams just a couple weeks ago. Tosca was one of his favorite operas. And even in undergrad school, when we would be working on Don Giovanni or Merge Figaro or a Brahms symphony, he would always look at me with a twinkle in his eye and he would always say, yeah, but it's no Tosca. Unfortunately, Dr. Adams never had an opportunity in his career, in his very illustrious career, to conduct Tosca. But I think of him every time that I conduct that opera. And now, for the rest of my life, I will think of him even more while doing that show. 
A couple weeks before he died, we had our last phone conversation, and we discussed two of our favorite things to talk about. We discussed scotch and Mahler. And I told him as we were hanging up that day, as I told him often in the almost 30 years that we've known each other, that I am who I am today because of him. I will always think of him. I will always remember him. And he will always be a part of my heart and my soul and my legacy. Dr. Adams, you will be missed and you are always loved. Thank you, my friends, for listening. Join us next time, my friends, as we dive into Puccini's tragic love story, Madam Butterfly. We'll be sipping on some milk punch. Pack your bags, my friends. We're heading to Japan. And remember, stay thirsty for knowledge. The Mischievous Maestro podcast is researched and written by me, Andy Anderson. Recording engineer and co-producer is Ryan Hall. Art director and co-producer, Jefferson Reidenauer. Very personal assistant to The Mischievous Maestro and co-producer, Megan Keane. Production assistant, co-producer, and all-round great guy is Yvonne Kahn. Publicist for Andy Anderson is Jonathan Blaylock. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform to get all of the upcoming episodes with exciting drinks. To learn more about The Mischievous Maestro and for the drink recipes, visit our website, themischievousmaestro.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mischievous Maestro is so much more than a podcast. It's a lifestyle. I would like to remind you to please drink responsibly. If you're not old enough, don't do it. And if you are old enough, do it in moderation. And if you're having a bad day and refuse to drink in moderation, then please follow these simple rules for overindulgence. Please don't drink and drive. Please don't drink too much and then email your boss asking for a raise. And please, for all that's holy in the world, don't drink too much and then drunk text your ex at 3 a.m. This podcast is the sole property of the mischievous maestro and may not be used in whole or any part without the express written permission of Andy Anderson.